0: Welcome to Anthony Plogon Music. This is Eddie Ludema, the show's producer. In part two of Tony and Chad's conversation, Chad talks about his time with the San Francisco Ballet and how conducting a ballet is different from conducting an orchestra. From there, they move on to the New World Symphony and the importance of score study and some strategies he has for score analysis.
1: You've also conducted ballet a little bit. Is it really different conducting ballet as opposed to orchestra?
0: Oh my God, yes. (laughs) So when it's done authentically and true to form when you're working with a professional ballet orchestra, which there aren't that many of in the United States. There are very few. And I I had the fortune of getting to work with San Francisco Ballet on their Nutcracker run, which every year they do something like 28 shows in the month of December. It's, It's crazy. So I got to be involved as a rehearsal and cover conductor with them and be involved in the whole process. But when you work with a real ballet company, it's it's about the ballet, right? It's about the dancers. And so you in the pit, everything is at the mercy of the dancers. They rehearse with specific recordings, and then you're told this is the recording we use, those are the tempos we use. So you have to match that. It's not your artistic liberty. It is a lot more constrained and constricted. You can balance things out, but you can't slow down in that beautiful climactic moment if if that's not how they practiced it for the last four months, you know, to their recording. And also what, what I was doing and what I learned is I have to learn the choreography, right? So my score, I basically, I memorized the, the nutcracker. I had the whole thing pretty much memorized going into this because you have to mark your score with, or at least I did. And I was taught by these ballet, great ballet conductors there. Um, Ming Luke in particular, who's the principal guest there took me under his wing. Um, You just write in the names of, of, you know, whatever the French terms are for the specific choreographed motions that are happening on stage at those given times. So that's my cue and I'm looking for that. And so if I was looking at my score, it wasn't for the music. It was purely for like, what's the name of the next, you know, Port-au-Bras. Oh, yeah, the arms are going to go out like this. She's going to do this or the tour and lair is going to happen. I'm looking for their feet to do something. And so that was like eye opening that. I was learning, you know, it was more important to learn about the dance than it was about the music, and then with, on top of it, because this was such a crazy long run of of shows for Nutcracker, no one does that many. I, I think they do more than any company in the world um, in a month period. They had eight to ten principal cast dance casts, so like the leads, they had eight to ten different different pairings, and so each of them, everyone's unique. And you you have a, a principal male dancer who is six foot three. And then you have a principal male dancer who's five foot five. Guess what? They're going to jump differently. They're going to be able to stay in the air for a different amount of time. And they're all going to have different ways that they connect with the music. And so I would have to make notes in my score on for each of the names and how for the for the big, let's like say the, the pause, the variations, right, where they're all featured. I would write the name of the person and then anything I knew about them. For instance, one of the principles, he told me, Chad, I need the music to be rock steady because if you push it, I will just go with the music no matter what, even if it's too fast for me. And that's my flaw. So you just need to lock it in. And then for the exact same variation, the exact same dance with someone else, they said, Chad, I need you to push the tempo. I have a tendency to drag. So I need you to push it and I'm going to know to keep going. So you have to change it based on their each dancer and their physical strengths, their physical weaknesses, their mental strengths, their mental weaknesses. So it was very intense, um, to be around that. And I got to be, I would do all of the, a lot of the rehearsals, which are just with the piano. So you're just standing there next to a pianist conducting them just over and over. And it's just people filter through it's the first couple comes and they do the, the pa da de and then the next comes in and then the next comes in. So you're doing it 10 different times in 10 different tempos stopping, taking time in certain spots. So it was, um, it was a wild experience, but very different.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, we're going to get to your book, which uh, which is called You Earned a Degree in Music, Now What? We're going to get to that in a bit. Um, I have to say there's one aspect of the book, not that I didn't like, but just wasn't there. Um, and that is to get a degree in music is one thing, but to be good enough to have a career – much less go out and earn it. In other words, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be good enough at, at what you do, whether it's playing an instrument or conducting or whatever. And and that's, for me, an awful lot of that is putting in the work, putting in the time. And I remember the last time I think I was at your place, you were studying scores, and you said you spent, you had spent, I think, around 700 hours looking at videos of conductors. And what you're talking about here in terms of the work that you have to do, in terms of the work you had to do as a cover conductor for the San Francisco Symphony, you don't hesitate to put in the work at all. And I think that's a, a, a foundation for your success or for anybody's success is, is putting in the work. And um, I don't know if you'd like to expand on that, but uh, I see that in you. But in a way, it seems like um, you're having so much fun doing it that maybe it's not work.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely true and and before i wrote this book which we'll get to like you said eventually i was teaching some lectures on this that's something we had really bonded over you know that i was teaching courses and talking about the career side of things the business side of things and the way i would start these um these lectures of these talks with students is the first thing i would say is in order to make it in this industry you have to be you have to be in the top percentile at whatever you do whatever your craft is um i'm not here to talk about that if you're not at that that top tier or very, very close, it's probably not gonna happen, so you have to control that that's that's the baseline and now here's all these other tools and all these other things that are what's gonna set you apart and get you to the next opportunity. and so yeah that that it's it's spot on you you have to be someone who's driven who has the work, ethic, the talent, whatever it is, that combination, not giving up and does it feel like work all the you know does it feel like work or or you know is it fun? I love doing it. I mean, I do. It's 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 amazing. And and for me, conducting, I found a deeper connection with than I ever had with trumpet. And I thought my whole life was defined by trumpet, which is not quite healthy. You know, I think that's a challenge we all go through, is we often are, have trouble separating ourselves from our craft. Um, but with conducting, I could sit, if, if you just gave me unlimited paid time off, I would still sit there and study scores. And And I like to, you know, talk with people about it and young students who ask about conducting and, and, and my, my goals. And it's like, I look at Herbert Blomstedt, who's in his nineties and he's conducting, he has as much money as you could have ever. He's four decades ago. He was conducting the biggest orchestras five decades ago. He's conducting concert cabal. He's making all the money you could need to support yourself, sustain yourself, not have to worry about any of those other things, but he's still out there conducting and studying scores and learning and trying to get better. And that's, that's what I want. And that's what I hope. So if, if I had the you know, part of the hustle does come from I'm supporting myself as a musician. I don't have another job or anything like that. I need to make money doing this, um, which does add stress. But if I didn't have that, I would still be working the same. I would still be pouring over scores because I love it. It's amazing. And and thinking learning about psychology and how you get the best out of people and how you manage time efficiently in a rehearsal. Like I just nerd out on that stuff. So yeah, it that that wouldn't change. You know, whether I have a stable life and Everything else outside is in place. I think I would still work the same way.
1: Do you think that you've changed your views on time management and how to best work?
0: I have. I would say um, I spend more of my time, the more comfortable I've gotten conducting, the further along in my career, is the the more time I spend listening to what's happening around me rather than just going in prepared about me, 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 which I think you have to do, right? As a conductor, it's you come in with an interpretation, you come in with hours you know hundreds of hours of studying and preparation and interpretation but it really does come down to in the end are you actually listening to the people around you to what they're saying to how they're playing what they're offering and so that's been the big change is i'd say finding more time when i can back out of things and not feel the need to control and not feel the need even to be you know keeping a steady beat and pulse or things like that where it's like okay i take the back burner these incredible musicians who have put in their thousands of hours into their instruments, they're going to lead here. The concertmaster is going to lead this spot. And I'll be clear with the cues and I'll bring things in and I'll be there for the next big tempo change, but I'm going to step out of the way. So I think it's an ego thing, but it's an ego thing that I think just comes with the confidence and experience, which is slow to come by as a conductor because you do, you can only get better when you have an entire, you know, when you have multiple people in front of you or you know especially for symphony a full symphony orchestra which is hard to get time with and so it develops and that's why you're still considered a young conductor in your mid to late 40s that's still early for a conductor that's that's young stages because we can't just go into a practice room and shut ourselves in and that you know we do that with studying but it's entirely different the second you step onto a podium i can't remember who i was talking to who said they don't say that they've actually learned a score until they've conducted through that piece in a performance in rehearsal and performance settings it's like you can know the piece inside and out you could memorize it in your room you could listen to a recording and cue everything perfectly you don't know it yet until you know what it feels like to actually go through it with those musicians in front of you
1: so so just just as an example and i don't know if you can even answer this but let's take two scores that you where you were involved in san francisco dvorak eighth and alpin symphony um could you say or approximate how many hours you spent on the Dvorak studying it before the first rehearsal and also on the Alpine Symphony? It's
0: definitely in the hundreds, especially Literally hundreds, for, hundreds Definitely for the hundreds for the Dvorak program and especially even more, you know, uh for the for the uh Prokofiev that was on the first half because it's an obscure incredibly difficult virtuosic cello concerto and really concerto for orchestra. Um the alpine symphony less because i was asked you know hey can you come be a cover conductor and it was two weeks before that so i had two weeks notice to start learning that program um and so for that one it was less but i mean probably you know i was probably putting in five or six hours of studying a day to get to get ready for that and and then you still don't know because as a cover conductor unless you have to jump in for a first rehearsal let's say the conductors flying in from europe and their flights cancelled then you get first rehearsal, you get first crack at it, you can sort of go through it as you feel you should and want to and how you interpret it. But most of the time, if you're a cover conductor, it means the conductor got food poisoning the night of the second show. And now you have to jump in on an hour's notice, you have to do it the way that that person did it overall, you you know, the the musicians are going to be particularly receptive to you. But if that conductor slowed down and they did a subdivision for two bars, you know, before the big slowdown and you disagree with that, and you would never do it that way. You have to do it that way for that concert. And so um, you spend all these hours studying it, but then you're sort of at the mercy of how does the conductor that you're the backup for do it and they could do it and oftentimes do things very differently than what you thought. Um, sometimes you love it and sometimes you hate it and it doesn't matter how you feel. You have to then mark in your score how how they did it. And so Um, it's a very interesting thing because then that's another compressed timeline for preparation, taking obsessive notes in a rehearsal of how they do these transitions. Do they go into cut time? Where do they go into cut time? Where does it go back into a subdivision? So it's, it's, it's very, very different, a very interesting experience still.
1: And I've learned some brass ensemble scores, um, But I've never learned an orchestral score. And so if you're learning an orchestral score, how do you go about it? Do you first just sort of get an overview of the score and then do you study the specific instruments and see how they work together? Or, or do you just go over specific sections or how do you do that?
0: So, yeah, this is my approach and everyone has their own opinions on how it works. For me, I take, I find out I'm conducting a piece next season, next month, whatever it might be. I listen to it once without a score. Because there's a beauty to that to just experiencing and enjoying music, that thing I think we're envious of for audiences who have never heard, you know, Alpine Symphony for the first time, like, I'd love to know what that feels like. I don't remember what that feels like. I've known that piece for my entire young adult and adult life. So um, I like to listen to something without a score, <laughs> then I'll listen to it again, pick a different recording usually, and um, follow along with a score. And then I start to mark in cues. Just what are the and usually it's just the obvious cues. Okay, the oboe solo is there. So I'm gonna put a cue in for that. And clearly the melody is down here in the in the violas at this spot. And so I go through and I do cues, and then I just keep keep listening. And I I listen to lots of recordings. Old school conductors talk down upon that and say, Don't listen to recordings because you're just gonna mimic whatever you hear, and then it's not your interpretation. It's like uh, if you don't have any thoughts of your own and you listen to the only one recording over and over maybe, but like, we have the entire recorded history of this art form that we have for, let's say the last hundred years. And I think you're foolish not to take advantage of that. So I listen to tons of recordings, you know, old ones, new ones. And, and so then I start to mark things in and then I start to, you know, look for what's happening underneath what's going on in the bass line? that's a weird chord what is that and then i'll do a little analysis of that i don't do a like a roman numeral analysis of every bar but i do it in spots where things are unique things stand out why are there these weird accidentals there um you know what's the counter melody oh that's not the melody in that spot but we just heard the melody five times in a row actually i think that inner voice is the thing that's interesting and that changes the color and so i go through it in that sense i also do a full phrase structure of every piece. So four bar phrase, oh, that's five bars. Oh, there's a three bar phrase. That's a seven bar. I don't know what that is. You know, I don't know how many bars that is. Uh, I don't know what Scho- if Schoenberg even thought that was in X number of bars. Is that a phrase? And so I make those types of notes and I use specific colored pencils for that. I use green for all of my um, phrase structures, red for cues and blue for dynamics. Black I use for meter changes. I use shapes for meter changes as well. If, if something's in four, four, I draw a square three, four, I draw a triangle, I have a whole little system. Um, but what happens is after t- you start spending a decent number of hours, things start popping out of the piece at you just like screaming, you're looking at this corner and listening like, Oh, my God, that that cello line right there is just like, so crazy, or I didn't realize that happened. Or that's such an interesting harmony there that needs to come out or you start to disagree with things you hear in recordings You go, Oh my God, the trumpet player is so the first principal trumpet is just like bashing the crap out of those, you know, those accented notes. It's, it's accented, but it's our job. (laughs) It's accented, but it's piano. That needs to be more rounded. And you start to find yourself having very visceral opinions about things. And that's when I know I'm onto a good place. I'm now getting beneath the surface. When I start to agree or disagree with things I'm hearing, um, I also, in another layer, I will sing through parts. i don't I can't sit down and um reduce a full score at the piano. My piano proficiency is not at that level, and instead of spending the thousands of hours needed for my keyboard skills to get to that level, I'd rather either play things on the trumpet one at a time, sing through stuff or plunk out one or two voices at a time on piano. I can do. Um, and I'll just look at what that's like and you make notes. Oh, yeah. Trombones have rested for 497 bars. I'm gonna cue that. It's not important. They come in with a pianissimo whole note, but they're gonna really need me there, you know. And so you start to notice little details like that, and it all starts piling up. And pretty soon you have an informed opinion of how you think something should unfold, how a piece of music should go. And and then, like I said, then in the moment, it's. You have to hear what the orchestra is doing. What's their tradition? Vienna Phil is going to play Dvorak 8 very different than Czech Phil, than San Francisco Symphony. And so you have to find a balance of, I'm going to try and share and guide them through this journey down this path I would like us to go to, but it's not going to be just that. You have to take in their considerations a bit too and, and what they're putting out.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So now we'll go to the New World Symphony and you're a conducting fellow there. And um, you got that, you said, by an audition where one of the pieces you conducted was the Dvorak 8th. What exactly do you do at at the New World Symphony? And that's where you have a really strong connection with Michael Tilson Thomas.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So actually, I never assisted him in San Francisco when I was working with the symphony those years I was living out there. I only worked with guest conductors, so I never got to work with him. But with New World, the job, uh, basically, I'm the staff assistant conductor. They refer to it as the conducting fellow, but I' I'm, I'm the only conductor on staff that I'm, that's here through the entire season, and my job, in addition to being the cover conductor for the entire season. So every week I'm responsible to learn to the best of my ability, every program, even if I'm conducting it or not. So that's the baseline. Then what's great here is I get to share the subscription concerts, many of them, not all of them, but I get to conduct the, the overture on them, with, whether it's with MTT or any of the guest conductors. Uh, I'll do the overture. And then they'll do the concerto and symphony and they'll watch whoever the guest conductor is or music director at the time um will watch my rehearsals that's part of their their responsibility here and they'll give me notes and we'll debrief and we'll talk and they'll give me their thoughts and so i get to do that and then i'm in charge entirely of putting together two um, family programs a season an education concert as well as several special projects which vary like my first season we did a program alma latina which was all music of uh the latin composer community and it was just it was such a great time but I get to do these special project ones as well so it's it's a lot it's it's a lot of responsibility and um but the, the fact that I'd say that one of the big highlights is this time I get to spend sharing these subscription weeks with the best you know the, the the most prolific conductors in the world come through here whoever goes to New York Phil or San Francisco symphony those are the same people that come through New world Symphony and They will watch me rehearse a piece over a week and watch, you know, and to get feedback from these people is just like, I just, that doesn't happen. There aren't assistant conductor posts like this. When you traditionally get an assistant position with the symphony, that music director watched your audition. The reason you're there is because they picked you, but then they're not in town when you're doing the kids' concerts or... Maybe not even for when, if you're lucky enough to get a, de- uh, a subscription debut, they might not be there and it's not their job to do that. You're just now on staff. But here I'm on staff, but I also get this mentoring from all of these conductors that come through. I get to know all the soloists that come through. And so it's so much more than even just the music that's being made, it's the community that's built here, it's the people I get to meet, it's the administrators, it's agents, it's like, everyone that comes through, I have an opportunity to meet. And it's almost like an expectation that if they're coming through, they know this is, it's a young professional orchestra for those who don't know. Basically everyone's in their twenties and thirties, usually you know, recently out of grad school, doctoral programs, things like that. And this is sort of an in-between. It's, it's a professional orchestra, essentially. It's run that way, new program every week. Um, but people come here and to, to not be here. The goal at New World Symphony is that the musicians leave as quickly as possible and get jobs in big orchestras. And we have a big track record. I mean, this past week, uh, the winner of the I think it's second horn in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, uh, Roy was uh, a horn fellow here my first year, and he won that. And the runner up is a current French horn fellow here. So it's an extraordinary track record, I think. Um, between last season and this season, we've had something like thirty people win jobs in major orchestras around the world. Out of a seventy-two person orchestra, because it's a smaller one, and then we fill out with some subs to have almost half of your orchestra win jobs within like a six-month window. It's a proven like training ground that just sort of accelerates careers. So it's a really special place, and I, I still can't believe I get to be here.
1: And it's very, very creative too. I mean, the, the things that they do, the the hall that they have, uh, everything, and and all of this was. Uh, because I believe because of Michael Tilson Thomas, MTT.
0: Yes, it, it was. So he's, he's the the co-founder. Um, he he founded this in 88. And the other founder was Ted Arison, who was the, the CEO founder of Carnival Cruise Lines. And basically, the idea was Ted was talking with MTT and said, all of my ships go out of Miami Beach, out of the ports here. This town doesn't have I want there to be a professional orchestra here. And they kept talking, and the entity said, I think I have a very interesting idea. Let's do it. There's just a a gap for students coming out of conservatories and universities. it's, It's very difficult. How do you just go from there to a professional orchestra? Not everyone wins a job. Not everyone's ready. People are on the cusp. But I want to create a training orchestra, essentially, is what he referred to it as. Just an orchestra that we're going to run here. We're going to bring in top coaches and players from orchestras around the world, conductors, all of that. And run a season and they can be here and know what it feels like to be in, in, in that grind. That is, you know, the professional circuit essentially, and they can take their auditions and hopefully win jobs. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been more than 30 years since then. And it's just, there's really nothing like it. There are a few other, um, training orchestras, so to speak like this in in the U S but nothing that has a track record like this. It's just, it's extraordinary. And MTT is, is such an incredible mentor and he's he's such an educator not as i think everyone listening knows there are plenty of people who are great musicians and not great teachers you can be the most prolific performer but if you can't put it into the right words or you don't know how to tailor how you speak about how you do something to a beginner to an intermediate to an advanced to someone you know then then it, it it's it doesn't help but mtt his true passion really is in addition to making music at the highest level is passing this on and inspiring younger musicians. And it's just getting to have him as my mentor over the last four years is just, you know, I take this with me forever. He's, you know, it's it's so to speak, it's corny to say the passing of the baton, but like we, we are in an industry, we're in a, a rare situation as, as classical musicians that we do get to have mentors, this mentor-mentee relationship. That doesn't happen in most jobs in the world. You get a new gig and working for some company and they go, great we'll give you two days of training, and then you start or learn, learn Microsoft Excel before next week. Great. You don't have someone who like you get to spend time with and ask questions who's done this for decades. And, you know, it just feels really special because MTT cares about things I care about with elevate I was commissioning all these young American composers. MTT's big mission was to, you know, shine lights on the great American voices he believed in, you know, and Steve Reich and, and Philip Glass and john Adams and, Lou Harrison. Before that, he was just a, such a big proponent for the the mid twentieth century American voices, and his teacher was Leonard Bernstein. And it's just you trace this lineage back, and you go, "Wow!" Like, I can't believe I get to be a part of this—the the passing on of music—and for me, in particular, American musicians is just like uh, it's so powerful. And so he's just—he's changed so many lives. I, I've never met anyone like him. You know, I'm so grateful that I've had this chance to have this—you know—relationship and friendship that's been building over years now join us in the bonus room where chad talks about his book you earned a music degree now what it's a book that offers practical suggestions for students graduating from college and wanting to pursue a career in music students will find this part of the interview not only inspiring but very practical as well thank you for joining us and if you're enjoying these interviews please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and help us spread the word